So Natasha Shatunde, thank you so much for meeting me and for agreeing to be Themisys Year of the Month. Um, I am going to ask you 20 questions in an unreasonably short amount of time. <laughs> let's see how we get through them. Yeah, so let's start things off with a quick check-in. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Today is a Friday, so that's always a good day, even if it's in a pandemic. Um, so yeah, no, I'm feeling great. Brilliant. And um, other than this interview, of course, uh, what was the best part of your day today? Okay, so the best part of my day today was opening a package that I received from um, Anna Philip, which is a Black-owned, Black female-owned company. Um, and in it included some vases, which I've been so excited about. And I brought them to show you guys. This is one. And then oh my God, I love it. Because I love the moon. And this is another one that I got. So yeah, and um, I absolutely adore them. Um, another thing that's been a highlight of today has been um, lighting uh, one of my candles that I have, and it's from another black female business um, called Elephant and Bamboo, and their candles smell like absolutely delicious, and I just love sort of lighting them to just bring nice scents into my home, so yeah. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. We're going to definitely put the links um, in the description of this video and the packaging is stunning as well oh wow thank you for sharing that i also i really i honest to god i don't know these people <laughs> and they've not paid me to do this so i literally just love plugging like black businesses especially black female businesses that's fantastic thank you for telling us that we don't have to like put any advertising kind of <laughs> um, writing but we'll make sure to post them because that that sounds like really good advice um so other random question do you ever get to snooze your alarm yeah i do all the time i do all the time it's one of my favorite features um but then i sort of trick myself with the snooze so instead of actually snoozing i will i will actually physically snooze because i'll wake up and i automatically snooze but just in case i don't snooze and i just sleep through i set like three alarms so i'll have like one going off at a time and then I'll have another one going off 10 minutes later and another one going off either five or 10 minutes after that, which will be the actual time that I need to get up. So I can still do the, the, the snooze that I would do, but it doesn't matter if I do or I don't because there are other arms that are gonna wake me up anyway. So. Let me just say, this is not part of the questions, but I think it's very impressive that you can sleep through alarms. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can, I can, honestly. It's like, I, I, the one, I have this crazy alarm that's just, it's awful. It's just like, nah, nah, nah. it's really horrible and it's really loud and everybody hates it. But that's the only one that's going to wake me up. So I have to put one. That's, I mean, you're always going to have a good night of sleep wherever you are. Sounds <laughs> that's, I guess that's a really good skill to have. <laughs> um, so going back to the question, um, who has inspired you professionally in your professional life, in your personal life? Um, this is an interesting one, actually, because lots of people ask me the question. And I'm just like, who has inspired me? Who actually has? And I think maybe it is, and again, it's going to sound like I'm obsessed, and I am. Um, it's, it's the Black women in my life, because I grew up in a very, like, matriarchal sort of family. Um, it was sort of me and my mom, and then it was my nan as well. And, like, the only sort of man in it was my mom's brother my uncles um and so I think yeah my mom my nan um and my godmother and my mom's family friend who I'd call an aunt as well they all were um inspiring to me and can you tell me how they inspire you 
Um, I think they inspired me because they were very, funnily enough, for most of my upbringing, they were single. My mom has been single, like, pretty much all of it. Um, so I sort of was able to see, like, women, Black women in particular, being able to stand on their own to be able to provide for themselves and in some instances for their children as well. If I look at my nan, for example, who... I don't know how she did it because I think I'm too much of a scaredy cat to have been able to do it at the time. But when she was, um, I think she was maybe in her late teens, early 20s. Um, this was back in Kenya when um, it was still under British colonial rule. Um, she came to the UK um, because they offered opportunities to study nursing in the UK for people who were there. So she came and this was in the 60s. Um, or maybe late 50s. Um, she told me the date the other day. And um, yeah, she just came on her own and she was telling me about how like, you know, everybody in the village, cause she literally grew up, she was in the village, like the village, like, you know, long dog toilet village. Um, they sort of all came together and put the money together for the, the, the fair, the flight. And it was the first time she ever flew and she came and she came to Liverpool, she went to Liverpool. And yeah on her own and I was just like how how did you do that like how did you do that and then you know she had my mom and um, my uncles <clears throat> and then they went back um day three four plus my um, granddad went back to Nigeria and unfortunately he was killed in a in an accident when my mom was around nine so for the rest of that time my nan's just been a widow and she's just bringing up three children on her own um I just think it's incredible. And now she's just like, she's Nana, she's just this like, you know, old lady Nana, sweet. I don't know how to do this, Tasha, can you help me, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, she's really strong. And then even my mom as well, just bringing me up on, on her own too. Um, and she's, she's a character, but she's a great character. And she's very much the kind of person who, my happiness, I think is paramount. So I never have any pressure to do anything other than to excel. <laughs> obviously that's why I'm here but like I know a lot of um women around my age because I'm, I'm 31 now would have a lot of pressure from their families like when are you getting married when are you gonna have children blah 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 my mom's very much like I don't really care as long as you're happy if you want to be single and stay single that's fine if you want to get married and have children that's fine as well Although having children is really hard so I advise against that but <laughs> but it's fine and it's you know the same with my my aunts like just watching them just being amazing at what they do and then those two particular aunts actually have um they live abroad now so my godmother she was a senior teacher at a school in in Tottenham um and then when her children were adults she was like bye and <laughs> it's like teaching in international schools around the world and my aunt um aunt Carol she decided that she wanted to say bye to London as well and went to um, Italy at first and came back and now she's living in Germany. She's been living there for years. So I don't know, I just, I just think they're all just incredible women. They sound so fierce and just brilliant. And it's so precious, isn't it? To have that kind of family and that support behind you. That's absolutely brilliant. And it's mad as well, because they're very much like, um, Oh, Natasha, you know, or Tasha, they don't call me Natasha. What you do is amazing and, you know, you must be so, like, um, courageous to get up there and stand in court and all that sort of stuff. And I'm just like, well, what about you, man? <laughs> you guys have done such amazing things. Why do you think I'm able to do this thing? Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
Oh, that's absolutely lovely. I love that. And growing up in such a brilliant family, um, did you have a different dream job that you wanted to become as a child or? I mean, like, no, <laughs> I didn't really have many options. I've spoken about this before, like um, being in a, in a sort of Nigerian household, it was kind of like, it was just the professions really that I could choose. And mm -hmm. it, I just had a choice of a few. And the idea of sort of choosing what you wanted to become was something that, was sort of put into me at an early age and I initially thought about being a doctor but then watched Casualty and thought it was just too much responsibility and then you know sort of some barristers in the EastEnders and decided that that's what I wanted to do and I've always wanted to do that like I haven't wanted to do anything else um people advise you to have a plan b I probably should have had a plan b I had no plan b like I just had a plan a and um I don't know I think there were two things one thing was said to me on my journey um it was this man who basically just said like cream rises like to the top like that's what happens and I just thought to myself yeah and then at one point I was like but am I cream I don't know <laughs> I thought I must be it's gonna happen and obviously that happened um yeah and I think the other thing is sort of looking back on my journey I've been doing a lot of sort of reflecting on those sorts of things during this pandemic um <clears throat> It's just sort of made me realize that like, if something is meant to be, it will be. And I feel like, you know, I have a belief in God and if it's, if it's meant to happen, you'll clear path. You'll mm -hmm. clear path and it, will, and it will happen. Um, and if it's not meant to happen as well, it won't. So, mm -hmm. and you have to sometimes accept that too, which can be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that you could have cited an actor from EastEnders as someone that inspired you to become a professor. So I'll just <laughs> notice that for a second before moving on to the next question, which is what is your favorite feature of your journey to the bar? Um, I think my favorite feature was, so I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, I had those aims when I was, um, before my GCSEs, but then I decided to be a bit of a rebel during my GCSE year, which was obviously an oops. Um, and so I went to Reading, which is, you know, a great university. I enjoyed my time there. But I still, because I wanted to be a barrister from like, I don't know, primary school. So it was something that I wanted for a while. Um, and whenever I had these sorts of setbacks, I was just like, it's not going to happen, you know. Um, so I think the point where I really felt like, oh, wow, was, I think it was at the end, I can't, it must have been during the VPTC, and I was sort of sitting there, I went to this law school called Kaplan, which doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, um, it was very selective on who got in, you had to do like um, interviews, mock oral advocacy and written advocacy as well, and none of the other law schools asked to do that, and I got through, so that was great. And sort of, sort of sitting around um, in my classes, for which I had like loads of other um, people who went to Oxbridge who already had pupillage. I think maybe almost half mm -hmm. of the students that went there every year already had pupillage. Um, and then just being at the end, it must have been at a dinner, I think. I was sitting around looking at everybody and just thought to myself, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people here, they got here with the assistance that they've had in life on things like their parents paying for a private education or them going to grammar schools because I went to a comprehensive 
you know, going through that train of, you know, going to Oxford or Cambridge or whatever, um, and then sitting here. And I didn't have those things, and I'm sitting in the exact same place, which just goes to show that, like, my mom always told me to, that I needed to work not twice as hard, because I think that's what the, the, the ethnic minority men get, but because I was a woman, she was like, you need to work four times as hard, because you are Black and you are a woman. So unfortunately, you're going to be at the bottom of the pile. So you're really going to have to bring your A game. So it's the fact that it was like, do you know, I think I actually brought my A game when I'm here, you know, which was, which is quite cool. And then also like when I was called to the bar, that was a great moment because I don't think my mom really understood. She doesn't, she doesn't listen to me for some reason. She just never believes me when I say things. She needs to hear it from somebody else. So I was called to the bar and at the time I was called, I had pupillage and, um, you know, she was speaking to some great judges, one of which was, um, had retired from the Supreme Court and was sitting in a in court in Hong Kong or whatever, and she was chatting away with them and, you know, legal celebrities and, um, and other people's parents. And they'd always ask, you know, oh, does your daughter have pupillage? And my mom was like, yes. And they were just like, oh my God. <laughs> you had so many people who were there just like, oh my God. She has pupillage. My son doesn't have pupillage. My daughter doesn't have pupillage. Nobody has pupillage. It's such a big thing. And at the end of the day, my mom was just like, wow, <laughs> you really did that. <laughs> I didn't realize how like hard it was to get, even though I said it several million times. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was moments like that as well. It was just like, yeah, sorry guys. Sneeze, sneeze. <laughs> I love that. That's so many mums are really like that they just have to hear it from someone else to understand that it's like it's real yeah <laughs> <laughs> she understood it at the end so that's that's really brilliant and um on top of all the work that you're doing I know that you decided to study for you study for an NLM um while practicing at the bar and that sounds like a lot of work so can I just ask why do you decide to do that um I decided to do that because I really wanted to learn more about international law and I wanted to learn more about human rights, which is kind of funny because when I was doing my undergrad, I undertook international law module and I hated it. <laughs> but I don't know, I just got to this point in, I think it was maybe 2016, 2017, where I was just like, you know, I want, I want to not only continue to work and practice um, in England and Wales, I also want to put my foot into the international arena. So that's when I decided to go back um, to study. And it was absolutely amazing. I did it at UCL. They have this, I don't know if they, I think they still do, have this scheme where you can um, either do it full-time, you can do it part-time, or you can do it like what they call like flexible or modular, where you've got up to five years to complete it. So you will take whatever modules you want, but you need to make sure that you take the um, number that you have to, um, including your dissertation, or they call it IRE. Um, at the end of five years and I did it in three rather than five um, and I absolutely loved it um, I learned so much from it I think it's it's enhanced my abilities as an advocate in the practice that I have at the moment um, and hopefully it will advance me in what I would like to have in the future as well so I'd highly recommend it to everybody I think it's different because when you're studying for, when you're studying for period and you're, you're trying to get to a career, it's kind of like, I want to do really well in these modules because I want to get to mm -hmm. the career, right? And then you have those moments, if you stumble and you, you don't do as well as you want to in a module or, or the whole thing, you just think, oh my God, 
my career is over before it started. Whereas with this, it was kind of like, I was cushy because I was like, well, you know, I'm still practicing. I, I have nothing to lose apart from my money. Um, so it's fine. I don't have to, I mean, I've got distinction by the way. I've got distinctions in all modules apart from one. But we didn't talk about that. Um, and, um, but I did get like a, a merit in that, so it's all good. Um, there was no pressure, but then also you're going, you're studying, when you go back to practice to study when you're practicing you're studying because you really want to learn mm -hmm. and I met loads of I had in my first year I had this group of friends who were all um practitioners but they were all doing it full-time so it was sort of like maybe doing a career change or whatever but from like you know one was from the UK but she'd been um a solicitor practicing in France um and then another one was um at a firm that i actually knew <laughs> another one was from new zealand another one was from canada they were all like practicing there was a woman in my class who was a judge in korea like you had people who were it wasn't just me that was coming back to study because you wanted to learn but there were others as well and it was really that group that i had as friends who we still keep in touch now um yeah, they were amazing people and they sort of made the the course for me like particularly amazing so I would recommend it, honestly. It's the best thing. That sounds really lovely. And what has been the proudest career moment for you or career achievement? It's really tricky to pick one. At first, I was when I, I thought about this question, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can pick one. But there's, there's a few. I think I've had lots of cool things that have happened sort of adjacent to the bar. So, like, I remember, I think it was 2017, um, possibly 18. Um, I did my first news interview, live news interview um, with Sky News talking about Charlie Gard. Um, that was like cool, but it was also obviously the case was, was very sad. Um, but on a personal level, and I and I got it from through someone in my old chambers, so shout out for her. Mm -hmm. um, it was scary because when you do these like news appearances, for those of you who, who don't do them and don't know, um, they often ask you to do it very last minute. So it was sort of like that afternoon, she was just like, yeah, so they're looking for like two people. I'm going to do the eight o'clock, do you want to do the six? I was like, eh. <laughs> I had plans for this evening. I was going to prep my case for the next day. I had this, that, and the other. And now I have to choose an outfit and they're going to pick me up in a car, thank God. <laughs> I'm going to do my face and I'm going to do my hair. And, and then I'm going to like think about this case and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, but it was, I managed to get through it. And people told me that I did really well. I say people told me because I never watch myself. So. Yeah, so you, didn't, you didn't actually watch the interview? No, I've got the recording um, and I haven't watched it. <laughs> even in the bar course, even in the bar course when we had to record or um, like advocacy weekend, it's like, that's lovely. I'll do it for you for show, but I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> and I, um, I think another moment for me was like, um, in 2018, I was a social mobility advocate, which was like a bar council sort of scheme that's still running. And um, at the time, I was writing an article um, that was going in for the Young Bar, um, along with other people's like accounts, ahead of the um, annual Bar and Young Bar conference. <clears throat> there was a few questions that they'd asked a few of us, and we were sort of answering them. And it was supposed to go in, in the Times. And then that evening, the night before, they were like, oh, I'm really sorry to say that it's going to be in the online, but it's not going to be in the print version. Um, but don't worry, the Bar Council is doing something for the print version. 
And I was just like, oh, do we know what it is? I wonder what it is. And then the next day I woke up and I got a message from this person that was like a friend of a friend that I'd met once on Facebook. And he'd taken a photo of the Times newspaper, the law supplement, and in it is like a massive, you know, color photo. It was the summer of my face. <laughs> I was just like, what? <laughs> I, I went to bed, I woke up, this happened. And, um, yeah, I think that was my, the first time that I was, that was not actually, that's a lie. But it was the first time that I was in a newspaper, that's a lie. I was in like the front cover of like a local newspaper when I got my A-level results. Um, and then I was inside like some other newspapers in like the neighboring sort of areas within the same borough. So those of parents were coming up to me like, congratulations, Natasha, you did amazing. Anyway, um, so this, but this is national. So this is the first time I'm in a national one. So I ran around, I left my house and, um, I was like, I have to buy copies. <laughs> so like, plural. One, plural. So I went to one news agent and like, um, he had one copy of the time and it was my local one. And then, like, so he's known me since I was like six or something. So I was just like, this is me. I, like I stood there. You think it'd be quick. Like this moment would be quick because I'd have planned it in my head. But I had to go through the whole thing. And <laughs> I need to find my page. And I was like, this is me. Right, I need to find more copies. So I went to another shop found me again, showed them to the shopkeeper, like, oh my God, is that you? Oh my God. Then went to another shop, found them again, went to Sainsbury's, managed to pick up three. And then like, I was like, oh, this is me to the cashier. And someone in the queue behind me was just like, oh, is that you? And it was just like, I just had that weird moment. That was kind of cool. Um, but, sorry, go on. No, I mean, this is not part of the questions, but can I just ask your mom's reaction to that? Oh no, she thought it was really cool. <laughs> she was really cool. She thought me buying like 10 copies was excessive. Like uh, that's all I could get in Tottenham, okay? <laughs> I would have bought more if I could have, but people don't seem to read the Times in Tottenham. We said something about the Times. But anyway, um, I think maybe the last sort of best sort of career-ish moment was setting up the Black Barristers Network with um, Mavis and Monoraka. I think... Um, it was very needed. I think meeting her was just one of those moments because I met her at a um, urban lawyers um, conference, like career conference, um, where we were both helping out. And um, yeah, and I met some other fantastic black writers there too, and um, some of which are on the committee. And um, yeah, that was just, it was an incredible moment where we just sort of went from like absolutely nothing and an idea to being like, let's just launch it and see what happens. Um, and we had our soft launch, um, I think it was February 2019, uh, where we just had some juniors and we had drinks and it was just like, this is so really black this is so nice. And then we had like our big like launch in um, Middle Temple, shout out to them for giving us the space. Um, and oh, it was fantastic. It was just like seeing so many like black barristers in one room, it was mm -hmm. amazing. And um Obviously we did it right. So um, we got the drinks, which were um, happily donated by Middle Temple, but we had no food. So we went out to M&S and bought like <clears throat> nibbles and stuff. But prior to that, I'd already pre-planned this. I went to one of my local corner shops back in Tottenham, I don't live there anymore, but in Tottenham, Nigerian owned, picked up the chin chin obviously, and picked up some plantain crisps and put them on the table just it just we had to do it right and it was it was a fantastic event and seeing the senior um black barristers as well because some of them were like seeing other senior black barristers that they hadn't seen for years 
So it was really cool to see them like, oh my God, hi, how are you, blah, blah, blah. It was, yeah, we brought the aunties and uncles to each other. So it was really great. And I love that in a room from an inn, which usually all of those rooms have a bunch of paintings of old white men on the walls. So having that space taken over by Black solicitors or Black barristers networks, actually, that is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it was great. It was helpful. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And um, back to my questions. Um, do you, you work on so many amazing cases um, with complex situations. And I was just really wondering whether you remember the first time that you felt that you were having an impact on people's lives? Um, I don't know if I can remember the first time. I mean, I think it was a while ago, probably when I was doing some like duty advice work prior to the bar, um, representing clients in housing possession proceedings. And um, that was when I was literally helping people um, not become homeless, which is great. But I think a more recent time, which has really struck me um, in the last few years, has been um, domestic abuse cases that I've dealt with where um, I'm usually representing the victim and the victim is usually a woman. In fact, well, all of my cases, they've all been women. And, um, and a couple of them I'll be reading the witness statements prior to going, like the day before the hearing or whatever. Mm -hmm. and there'd be a description of what is a rape so for example I woke up to him having sex with me or um, he wanted to have sex with me I um, didn't I said no I said I did not want to and then he forced himself on me mm -hmm. so then I'd be in conference with him and we'd be talking about parts of their witness statement and I would say, okay, so now we're going to come on to the rape. Mm -hmm. And then they'd be like, is that what you'd call it? And then I remember, I remember the first time that happened, but I remember both times that happened, but the first one was particularly like, like this is a moment where, you know, I'm telling you that from the facts that you've told me, a man has raped you. And I've obviously made the assumption that that is what you would know rape to be because I assume that everybody knows what rape is but you don't and now I'm putting a label on it and I know that you know it's trauma that you have already but perhaps me putting the label on it and us putting it on it in the case is going to be particularly traumatizing for you um so obviously in the answer I was just like yes it is um but yeah I think it was those were the moments where it was just like wow because you know a lot of the times um in domestic abuse cases the abuse is it's not one act and unfortunately we deal with it in like singular incidents at the moment which obviously is being discussed in the court of appeal and we're awaiting the judgment but um it's it tends to, it's a pattern it's always a pattern of behavior that's going on for a period of time um to which I guess for women, they sort of don't necessarily recognize that some of the things that are happening to them are things like rape, especially given the fact that I think in society, there's lots of um, focus on stranger rape <clears throat> or date rape. Mm -hmm. But, and despite the fact that there was that case, I think you're in the House of Lords back in 1991, which basically sort of said that, you know, 
um, rape in a marriage is rape. <laughs> Despite that, people still seem to think that like men have control over women's bodies when they're in a relationship with them or when they are married to them, when that is not the case. And like, you can't refuse to have sex with someone. Or if you do, it's not rape. It's like, I don't know what it is. It's something I didn't like, but it's, it's, it's rape. So I think it told me a lot about society and the fact that we haven't had this conversation enough and we haven't educated ourselves and each other enough about these things. Um, I mean, I remember that reading that case back in, not reading it in 1991, I was like two, but <laughs> one or two. But like, I remember reading it in my first year of university and I was just so frustrated that I was alive at a time when marital rape was not a thing, that people thought that it was acceptable to force themselves on their wives. And it wasn't, it wasn't, a crime it wasn't seen as something that was bad like I remember just being so angry about it and I wrote this essay because he had a choice of whatever case wanted to write an essay on the written essay and I, nah, nah, nah. it was like my first um first <laughs> it was in the first time or something but yeah so it's just I think that struck me that we've not come very far from that if still to this day people <clears throat> and then and we put a lot on women so I'm gonna put women out of this men mm -hmm. think that it's acceptable to behave in that way and it's not right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that, that was probably one that sort of struck me, or it's two. A, it, it's so, it's such a great recognition having a barrister professional putting that label on it. And sure, it can be maybe traumatizing, but also it, it gives you that recognition and that understanding. And I saw a lot with uh, stalking cases as well. So many people don't understand what stalking is. And so if someone is just, um, is stalking you, but you think, oh, it's just text, or he's just come, always there for some reason, um, you know, there is often that not understanding that that is talking and that is not legal and you can protect yourself against that type of behavior. Um, and, and there's a lot of like, I think because our society does a lot of victim blaming as well, because even I've had, you know, in relatively recent times, um, communications from someone that I did not like. And um, to my mind, well, in fact, it took my friends to tell me that it was harassment, which, you know, being a barrister that practices in domestic abuse, it shouldn't take my friends to tell me it's um, harassment. But, um, you know, you, you start to think to yourself, did I leave that person on? Or, you know, maybe if I hadn't spoken to them, then maybe none of this would have happened and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we need to just get out of that out of blaming you know women for the acts of men for when they misbehave mm -hmm. absolutely i wish i could just end like that but i have so many more questions for you <laughs> so, don't, they don't speak to me anymore fine <laughs> it was just such a powerful sentence i wish i could just be like and that's it but <laughs> i have so many so we just need another sentence like that at the end of this interview just so you know <laughs> just be prepared <laughs> I'm gonna continue with my other questions, which uh, so the next one is, um, what would you say it's the hardest part of being an intersectional woman at the bar, um, or if you will, within the legal profession, if you wanna be a bit more general? Mm. I think in the past, so like for me, prior mm. to 
you know, meeting other black barristers and setting up the Black Barristers Network. I think the isolation was probably the hardest part. Um, this career is isolating anyway. I think everybody will tell you that because you're very much working sort of solo. Um, however, it's particularly um, isolating being a woman and then also being a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you're just around a load of people that are sometimes so horrible and so disrespectful. And other than your family, you don't have anyone in the profession to talk about it to, to vent. You don't know how to complain whether some, when someone, you know, reaches a level of complaint, which, you know, is so vague, you don't even know (laughs) what serious misconduct actually is if we're talking about complaints of the BSB, for example, or how complaint mechanisms work within your chambers and things like that. So I think that was really difficult. I felt um, very alone a lot of the time. Um, including when I was in spaces. In fact, sometimes when you're with people and in spaces, you feel the most alone. When you're amongst loads of people that, you know, don't look like you, think like you, say misogynistic comments in your presence um, and borderline racist comments in your presence, sometimes blatantly racist comments in your presence. um, And you feel like you can't say anything back because there's no one around to back you. Um, I think that was that was probably the hardest part. I think things for, for me personally have changed because I do have that support network in, you know, the barrister friends that I have that are black um, and those in particular who are female, because then we can talk about that sort of like intersectional experience that we have. Um, but, you know, at the time sort of, coming into the profession and also before like even doing the bptc and stuff oh, that was horrible as well there was only one other black person at kaplan maybe two i might have missed one sorry um it was certainly none of my class um it was hard it was very very hard very hard um you know when you have incidents that happen and you just think oh why did that person behave towards me in that way is it because you know, they don't like me because I'm a woman or because of the color of my skin, I don't know, but you don't really have anyone to talk to about it. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, no, it, it's difficult. And just when people make stupid jokes and comments that aren't really funny, um, I think that was the hardest part. I think now that I have this sort of like, I know so many incredible women, um, I know so many incredible black women, um, through the Black Barristers Network and through other networks that have been set up. Um, I think the problems, and I'm also because I'm older, because I think when, when I was more junior at the bar, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to be at bar. And you hear about the collegiate atmosphere that the bar has, and it does have it. But you also hear about, you know, especially from more senior barristers who were at the bar when everybody had to go into chambers you know how social it was how much you just go for a drink after court and all this that and the other and I think I came into the profession thinking it's going to be like that I'm going to integrate it's going to be fantastic I'm going to love it um and I tried to do it I hate it (laughs) also I think I tried to do it and I had I've just had a series of um mainly white people um do or say something that I've thought has been either snaky or 
discriminatory or rude, just being horrible, that I've sort of realized that actually I'm not here to make friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my friends. I've always had my friends. They're still my friends. Like my, they're my core. I love them to pieces. I'm not here to make friends. If it happens that I, you know, felt, you know, vibe with someone in my chambers then fantastic and they may become my friend but like I can't just have I can't spend too much time with my outside time and my social time with at the bar I like I need to leave it I I need to get out of it for my own well-being as well because sometimes you need particularly with the kind of cases that we deal with you kind of need a bit of a reality check because you start to get desensitized and then it's kind of like, oh no, actually, <laughs> that case that I did was really bad. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think things have changed for me because I've realized that I need to just sort of separate and, yeah, which is great. Um, so now it's more the difficulties of being an intersectional woman at the bar. It's more about things like work allocation and progression. You know, being a bit older now, I'm sort of trying to think about my future trajectory and whether or not that is being um, or could be being hampered by um, discrimination, race, and um, racism, either by um, staff or by solicitors or by clients or whoever. And um, I think there isn't a lot of um, transparency with things like that um, or recruitment in certain positions and things like QC and stuff that I think are, are probably the worst. I mean, as um, some people who are watching this may know, of course, there was the the BSB um, report that came out last year on um, income, which said that black women and I believe Bangladeshi women um, are the least um, and the least at the bar of everybody. And I know some people were really shocked. Um, and I wasn't. <laughs> Because I was of course I knew. Come on. It's like you're telling us what we really I mean, I'm glad you're saying it because we felt it. Like we have felt it. And people before me have felt it. And we've tried to vocalize it, but we haven't had the evidence to back it up. And you guys will not believe it until it's written on paper and, and that has happened. So I'm glad that that has happened, that they did that sort of analysis and they looked at it in an intersectional way because mm-hmm. the bar. It's only until recently that the bar's been looking at things, the BSB and the bar council from an intersectional viewpoint before it was just men, women, bang. And then people like me were sort of like, okay, so where do I fall in this? And it just skews figures completely because you know, you may have one woman barrister that's earning over a million, but like, do we have any women of color that are earning over a million? Who knows? Like we might not, you know, and 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 I think that's probably um, one of the hardest parts. But hopefully, because people have started to look at things from an intersectional perspective, um, things at the bar will change. The only thing that I'm worried about is culture and attitudes. Um, that I think that's the hardest thing, you know, trying to change people's views. Um, the sort of stereotypes um the assumptions that they make about us you know i think i think it's going to be the most difficult i think also the difficulty of being an intersectional woman at the bar is the fact that the bar has focused a lot um in my time in it 
on women, which has been needed um, and has been necessary. But throughout that, me and other um, black female barrister friends that I've had have really questioned um, what kind of woman they are looking at when they are focusing on these things for women. And most of the time, it's white women. It's the elevation of white women and we feel excluded. Um, so now that we've had, we unfortunately had the death of George Floyd, which has made people around the world and including at the bar, realize that there, it has a race issue, even though this is a race issue that happens since they started admitting um, black people to the bar. Um, I'm hopeful that they won't make the error of focusing on just black men and that they think about black women too. Mm -hmm. And that they also think about, you know, black people who have disabilities, for example, um, sexual, all these other sorts of factors. I'm hoping that people, I mean, I'm in many of the rooms, so they kind of have to, because I'm going to be there, but <laughs> telling them to, but like, I really hope that they do because I think too often, um, the dominant within a particular characteristic um, becomes the focus. Mm -hmm. So like I had um, one barrister say to me um, last year, I think it was after that uh, report with the, um, that BSB report on the income, he was kind of like, oh, I didn't really realize, I didn't, hadn't really considered. And he's a black um, barrister. I didn't really, hadn't really considered that like black women would have issues. And I'm just like, and then he also was just like, well, I guess child, you know, childcare and stuff. That really annoys me. Whenever it comes to women's issues at the bar, it's always about our wombs. It's always about childcare. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I, I do not have any children. I do not have a partner and I have issues. So let's talk. It just, it really annoys me. That's all they think. That that's the only issue that we have. When you have the BSB giving those absolutely disgusting, appalling fines to men at the bar who sexually touch pupils and others like that. And you're trying to tell me that it's just childcare that's the issue at the bar for women. Mm -hmm. And then that, that's just women. We're not even talking about race as well. So yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I can talk about this for ages. <laughs> It's, there is so much coming out of this and it's so interesting and I had just these ideas in my brain is just kind of, uh, you know, the entirety of what a barrister looks like when we're talking about a female barrister, what do we think of? And when you look at these chambers doing 50-50, yeah, maybe they have 50-50 and then they have one black person or one non-white person. Is that 50-50 really? Is, is it just one characteristic that you're taking into consideration? Is that enough? Mm -hmm. And then when you have, I, I just, in my head, I have that quote of um, all women are white or black so men and some of you are just brave. Um, and that's kind of really what is coming out of this. And it's really, really inspiring. So thank you for that. And I, after this recording is meant to be really quick, I have so many more questions for you. Um, but maybe that's on another day. Um, my to just kind of move on to a more positive note, I also want to ask, what is the best part of being an intersectional woman at the bar? I think that it's having an understanding and an appreciation of, um, of my clients and their hardships. Um, I think, you know, I come from a, a low income um, background 
single parent as well as being black and being a woman I, I have an appreciation and then also you know not going through that route that so many people go to to get to the bar you know going to the comprehension all that sort of stuff I have an appreciation for the hardships that people experience and I think empathy for me is easy for me to give and have because I get it like I, I get it a lot um which I think sometimes some barristers may not however much people don't want to talk about it but I think some barristers from certain backgrounds which I've already mentioned um might not have them and they might see this job and of course I hope they if they feel like this is an attack, then yeah, it is. Um, they may see this job as something that they're doing because they're entitled to do it. And it's all flash, flash, me, me. I'm going to stand up and do all this. Like, you know, I should have been an actor. I should have been an actor. But instead, I'm going to do submissions and all that sort of stuff. When it's like, we're, we're dealing with human beings here. It's, it's actually not about us, unfortunately. And um, I remember once... Um, I can't remember what it was in, but someone was sort of talking about the, the structure of a courtroom and how like skewed it is because you have the judge mm -hmm. and then you have, you know, okay, you have a clerk, whatever. Then you have the barristers mm -hmm. and then like back in the day, you'd have the solicitors behind you and the clients at the back. Mm -hmm. When this whole case is about the clients and they're at the back of the room. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, it's not about us at all. And I think it's about us sort of understanding that the lives that people have, the difficulties that they have. Um, and I think being an intersectional woman really helps me to, to get those and to understand those, you know, in all of the, cause I've, you know, I obviously practiced in family now, but before I've practiced in so many different areas, including like crime, including extradition, including, um, landlord and tenant, including other civil work, where I've met, had clients from so many different backgrounds, and I can, I, I like, I get it. <laughs> I, I understand you, and I, I, I feel your pain, and I feel the difficulties that you're going through. So, and that helps. I think it helps build their trust. Um, it also means you listen to them as well. I think some of the cases that I've had, like clients who have been the most appreciative, have been the ones that, where we've lost. And I remember thinking, why is that? Why is that? And they sort of clocked that. I listened to them. Like, especially as when you're the barrister, often you're coming in last minute. So it's like, oh, I've just been instructed for the trial. So I'm just coming in for the trial. And it's like, hi, you don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm really sorry about this lack of you know, continuity of counsel, but it's me and we're here for trial. And actually like in conference, we'll sit and listen as much as I can in the time that we have available. And I think, I think they really appreciate that. So even if we do lose, it's kind of like, yeah, but she gave it her best shot and she actually listened to what I had to say because I really wanted to speak. So yeah, and I listen because it's like, this is, I know that this is not, this is not my day. It's not my time to shine, it's, it's, it's your case. And I want you to feel like you've been heard and I want you to feel like I'm gonna try my best for you. Mm -hmm. Even in those cases where it's just like, we're going to lose. Um, <laughs> but with those ones, it's like, I have to tell you in 10 different ways <laughs> we're going to lose, but I'm going to do it in the nicest way possible. Yeah. I love it. You, your job sounds like it's not only just representing them, but it's also listening to them. So it's, it's a barrister, therapist, social worker. You're just throwing a little bit of everything in there. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> it can be sometimes. And sometimes it's literally like, I'm not qualified for this. 
<laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway, especially when I used to do youth court work as well, because um, I used to represent clients in the youth court, and you just sit there, and it's just like, it's the same one again, he's come back from stealing bikes again, and you're trying to shake him. <laughs> but you have to remind yourself that, like, you know, I'm not his disciplinarian, I'm his barrister to represent him here today, there are other agencies that are out there just want to help him with those things, so hopefully to help them with those things that's true and um so it, it sounds like your days can be really tiring and stressful so how at the end of one of those really long days you go home maybe <laughs> but how do you release all that stress frustration maybe sadness um at the end of one of those really long days uh music this was music i think coming back from court when we used to go to court in person so sitting on the train um putting music in my headphones now that we're at home it's alexa just playing music um in different different ways so like i'll either be listening to music and dancing listening to music and singing listening to music and dancing and singing listening to music having a glass of wine or prosecco or a cocktail and dancing and singing or listening to music singing washing the dishes or cooking with a glass of wine prosecco or cocktail <laughs> i just i i love music i adore it it's just like What's that Abba song? Thank you for the music. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it makes me want to cry. That's the thing. Lots of people have like, you know, their sad songs that like make them teary and they're normally love songs. So me, it's just random songs like that. <laughs> I'm just like, thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. Thanks for all the joy they're bringing. Who can live without it? I, I could keep going with that. But <laughs> yeah, no, music is incredible. I'm just like, this is such a gift, such a gift. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely music. I can definitely try and zone out and change my mood by just putting on some tunes. Like I'm going to court as well. I feel like, you know, I'm going to have to bring my A game. Mm -hmm. I used to play Little Wayne sometimes. Um, going into the Royal Courts of Justice one time, I was playing some Afrobeat. That's how I was waiting to be security. And I just thought to myself, gosh, you know, the people, the architects who sort of like designed this building and the people who built this building, the people who commissioned this building, probably did not imagine me, like, you know, a little black girl from Tottenham walking in playing Afrobeats, about to go and do a hearing in the High Court or wherever it is. So, yeah, music's amazing. I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. And talking about going to court, um, how are you dealing with? everything kind of how are you coping with everything on zoom now and i'm talking work but also social life and just life in general how how is that going for you um it's interesting i mean sitting in front of a screen um doing a hearing is it i think for everybody we, we were all surprised at how tiring it actually can be um i think from a personal sort of life and social life aspect. I don't really do that much social on Zoom. Mm. And also, I am an introvert, which may surprise some people, but I am an introvert. So I love being social. I love social events. I love parties. I love raving. I love all of that. You know that now, party girl, great. But equally, I also like, I need to decompress afterwards. So I remember a couple of, there was one time, <clears throat> in my old chambers, I might have been a pupil at the time. And we had a, probably a seminar and then we were having drinks afterwards mm -hmm. or, or maybe it was just a drinks event. 
anyway, I left, not leaving, leaving. I went out to have a cigarette for this week. Said it now, it's on the video. Um, and the chamber's director came out and he was just like, are you okay, Natasha? I was probably sitting on the floor. <laughs> on, the, on the floor, on the street. And I was like, no, I'm fine. It's just, there's just so many people. Mm-hmm. I just need a moment. Mm-hmm. That's fine, I get that, I do that as well. So yeah, like the pandemic has been hard. I live on my own. Um, so it's been sad not being able to see people. Mm-hmm. Certainly, but I also love my own company. <laughs> so if I can like avoid, I don't really do that many socials and stuff on Zoom and things like that, unless it's like catching up with a friend. And even then I think I prefer to have a phone call. Like mm-hmm. I, yeah. So whenever it's like forced, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm team outgoing introverts as well. So I absolutely love, I, I understand everything um, you're saying and I appreciate it. Uh, what do you see as the most pressing issue of the bar nowadays? This is really tricky because I think the bar has so many issues. It still has so many issues. I think one issue that I think we really need to work on is more transparency. And we're sort of getting there, but um, more on the level of like, you know, the BSP and the Bar Council publishing statistics. I think that's where the transparency is. I think where it really needs to start coming from is Chambers. Um, I think Chambers needs to, and I've been saying this for years, even when I've been sort of involved on committees and Chambers, um, not my current Chambers, my old Chambers, um, we need to comply with our obligations with the BSB and monitor the allocation of, of, of work, particularly unallocated work. Like, because work allocation um, and getting good cases can either see someone's career going really well or going really stagnant. Um, it's so important and we don't really know much about it. Like, mm-hmm. as a barrister, somebody asked me, okay, so how do the clerks um, allocate cases? I mean, there's two scenarios. One would be, if a case comes into chambers and they're asking for a specific barrister, if the barrister is available, we'll obviously um, put it in the barrister's diary, but <clears throat> and they're asking for somebody to do this particular hearing. Anybody, give me some recommendations. Then what do the clerks do? Mm-hmm. How do they choose? And who do they choose? If they've got 10 barristers within a similar call bracket, mm-hmm. do they offer them all 10 or do they offer them two or three? And if so, why? And I've been in emails like I think once one of the clerks um before like years ago um accidentally forwarded me an email chain on a case about a case where um, I could see how it sort of worked because the sister had emailed so like sister had emailed and they were like okay so we have this person Natasha and somebody else and they chose the other person (laughs) Who just so happens to be in my current chambers now. Um, and that, I think she ended up being unavailable. So then they were like, Tasha, can you do this? I was like, why am I coming in as like second choice? But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's sort of how I found out about that aspect. But like before that, I had no clue. Um, and I think we need to know how they choose those barristers to put forward and why. I think it, it's very important. Um, but there also needs to be a bit more transparency or at least more working with the other side of our profession. Um, 
the solicitors. <clears throat> How do they choose um, what barristers to instruct? I am confident that there is discrimination and racism there, mm -hmm. but nobody wants to talk about it. And they need to sort it out. Mm -hmm. There's a problem. And it really does affect our, our lives and our careers. Now, it can either be <clears throat> discrimination from the solicitor themselves or the solicitor being the conduit because the client is the one that only wants a white barrister, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's a problem that, that, that really needs to be tackled because, you know, however much, <clears throat> whatever we do, things aren't going to change unless that is tackled. You know, we, I mentioned the income report, you know, that's not going to change until we tackle things like work allocation. Mm -hmm. You look at the appalling number of QCs from different demographics, mm -hmm. um, that's not going to change mm -hmm. unless you work on work allocation. So, and just transparency and just so many different things like, how people are appointed on things on panels and things like that. I think there just needs to be a lot more transparency across the board. Um, and not just and when it's transparency, when you're looking at things, I don't want you to do the whole white and vain mm -hmm. or just women and men. Mm -hmm. You need to be looking at it from an intersectional perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And um, similar question, but what do you think, what do you see as the most pressing issue specifically within family law? Um, I think domestic abuse um, and how it's been dealt with, particularly in, um, in private children cases. Mm -hmm. I, because at the end of the day, with cases like the one I mentioned earlier, where I was like, we need these facts, we need these facts, got the facts. <clears throat> at the end of it all, she ended up, um, no longer being eligible for legal aid, so I didn't get to continue the case. However, I know that at the end of it all, there would be contact. Mm -hmm. And it will probably go down the same line of like, you know, bit of supervised, then it'll go to unsupervised, and there'll be like overnight stays. And it we're just gonna go through the same trajectory, regardless of whether those facts found, were found or not. I think domestic abuse is seen in the family courts often as an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. Um, something that they don't want to tackle. Um, sometimes you have some, some, you know, switched on judges who are just like, well, it's just what we have to do. But then sometimes you have some judges or magistrates, <clears throat> in fact, probably more often with magistrates, who just see it as an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And then you start grading it as well and being like, oh, this isn't serious enough. I mean, I've had cases where, you know, throwing items at mom and child is not serious enough. You know, even if facts were found, they wouldn't get on a um, domestic abuse um, perpetrator program because like they won't find it serious enough. Mm -hmm. What? Mm -hmm. And you just think, well, so what is the point? What is the point in all of this? You really don't take it seriously. Parental alienation on the other hand, you're like, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a real problem because <clears throat> some people like to say that the law is neutral. Mm -hmm. um, but 
And whether it is, is debatable. I mean, for me, language is important. The fact that it's he, 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 this, that, and this, and every single statue that you have just goes to short show that when it was drafted, it was drafted with men in mind. It wasn't drafted with women in mind. We talk about it for ages. Mm-hmm. I talk about it in respect of human rights law and how, you know, normally talking about public harms or private harms, but you can go into that another day. Um, but okay, let's just take it that, okay, fine. The law is neutral. Okay. But who is it applied? What applies it? Mm-hmm. It's human beings. And human beings are not neutral. However much people like to be like, oh, this is an objective test. It's not objective. Mm-hmm. You're coming to, into it, judge, for with your own background, with the things that you've seen, the other cases that you've dealt with, the things in life that you've dealt with, and your gender, and, and your you know, economic background, and your race, and this and that and the other, and all the assumptions that you make naturally we naturally make assumptions i think it's the way our brain just likes to work so it can work quickly and things mm-hmm. and you're making a determination based on the facts that you've heard but with all of those things about your own personal life and your characteristics and, and cases that you've dealt with in mm-hmm. mind as well mm-hmm. even if you don't realize it mm-hmm. so so yeah, I mean, so that's going into the question of do we need intersectional feminism in law, I guess. <laughs> then the answer is yes. But I think, you know, domestic abuse and family law, I think that that is an area where there is a particular problem. Mm-hmm. And some people would say things like, oh, we need more women judges. And I won't disagree with that, save that sometimes women can be just bad. Yeah. It's a bit like <clears throat> we black people, we sometimes say the phrase, not all skin folk are kin folk, mm-hmm. where it's kind of like not all black people are like pro-black people think you know can be bad or not that kind of person mm-hmm. um but you you uh, there needs to be a phrase for women because not all women are for women mm-hmm. at all and then even if you have women who are for women what kind of women are they for mm-hmm. another one so yeah we need to do some serious overhauls we need some serious training um of our judiciary um to deal with things better we need training of um, barristers as well because I've and sisters too, because I've had serious, I've had incidences where some of the things that people have said about domestic abuse cases have been shocking. Um, just trying to minimalize the abuse. And I'm just like, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mm-hmm. think I think that's probably one of the biggest problems um, mm-hmm. in family law. So again, so many things coming out, and I'm just thinking. I just read this article by Justice Sotomayor literally having a go at the reasonable men, um, which is absolutely brilliant and how any kind of uh, in her case decision is made with her experience in mind and her life. (laughs) Um, And it's the same for anything. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I absolutely cannot see how the law is neutral. And even if it is, uh, life is not neutral is definitely not gender neutral it's definitely not race neutral and institutions are not <laughs> and incidents are not crimes are not um so it is incredibly interesting and this is lightly off topic so you can absolutely not reply to this but um are you hopeful with regards to the um bill uh, about domestic abuse um or not really i mean i'm hopeful <sighs> It's, this bill, as we all know, has been a very long time coming and, you know, Brexit has delayed it um, significantly. But I'm, and, and that's been very frustrating that it's been delayed. However, I can sort of see how the time 
mm-hmm. it has given us mm-hmm. has meant that you know a lot of new things and new amendments have been able to be put into the bill people have had time to really think about things mm-hmm. um i am hopeful that it could be helpful however again like i said at the beginning the law is the law it's about how it's applied and it's human beings that are applying you know it's like okay so you make non-fatal strangulation a criminal offense for example that's great you know is a police is the police actually going to charge someone for that mm-hmm. i'm not saying that they won't but i'm just saying there'll be cases where they won't so you know and then you know will the cps then okay that to then go on to be prosecuted will it be prosecuted will there be a guilty do you see what i mean there's just so many elements so it's kind of like we can do the law and it's fantastic mm-hmm. and then also bearing in mind if you're strangling someone that is an offense anyway mm-hmm. so i don't know why it's, for me it's kind of like the problem the reason why we're putting these things in is because of the attitudes that people have the fact that they're choosing not to apply the laws that are already there that can mm-hmm. be used to protect women they're choosing not to so it's like, okay, so now we have to highlight it by saying this is specifically an offence or that is specifically an offence because they're not doing it. But if they still don't do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful, but I think you can't fix everything by just um, putting in a new statute. Mm-hmm. Like all the different agencies that are involved in these things need to change. But ultimately, ultimate, the ultimate thing that should happen which we are not doing, and it really annoys me, is that we really need to stop these things from happening. So all the time we're talking about, and I'm glad obviously that the government's putting money into, you know, <clears throat> domestic abuse shelters and charities and things like the other, and I always applaud that. But it's like putting a plaster on a heart that needs surgery. Like you're not tackling the cause. The cause is men, being abusive towards women think about why i think it's patriarchy which we need so many things in life would be better if and when patriarchy is dismantled but we need to tackle the causes of that and we need to change that because if you change that then you won't need all these statutes that are specifically like specifying specific you know things that are particularly um damaging towards women because the police aren't prosecuting it. Like they would be if they would be prosecuting under whatever other offense there is anyway, because they would actually care about women's lives. Mm-hmm. Because there is no patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they wouldn't even have to prosecute it mm-hmm. because the men wouldn't be doing it in the first place. So that's really what we should be tackling. Mm-hmm. Really and truthfully. We really need to tackle that. But we're not going to, because unfortunately we live in a patriarchal society which is role, you know, governed and controlled by men. Mm-hmm. So in order to be able to do that, you kind of need the blessing of men to do that. And mm-hmm. why, why would someone give up power? Mm-hmm. Why would they? So mm-hmm. well, that's what I want to do anyway. I don't know how, but I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's my aim. Like, what do we need to do to fix the fight? Just <laughs> kick the hierarchy? <laughs> one is actually hierarchy, isn't it? Because there is an intersectional element to the system of oppression as well. So um, yeah, I mean, patriarchy and hierarchy. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. I love that. Um, so you mentioned that the law needs intersectional feminism. Can you tell me why? I think um, the law needs intersectional feminism because I think it needs to recognize 
the different experiences that people have because of assumptions that people make about their, um, the characteristics that they have about them. Um, I think it happens in so many different ways. I think marginalized people who are marginalized for different reasons, they have the double, double whammy of being marginalized because of the different characteristics that they have. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I find very frustrating is in places that I sit, you know, panels or whatever it is else that, I, that I'm talking at, um, I'm often the only black face and, you know, either one of two or three um, women of color, mm -hmm. I think minorities. And nobody thinks about looking at the specific experiences that, you know, marginalized women, for example, have in places. And I'm always the one that has to flag that. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, why do you think about it in the first place? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It just really frustrates me where the fact that people often think about things from their own sort of perspective, but they never think about other people's perspective. So like take family law, for example. Um, I talk about domestic abuse. I talk about things that are horrible that are experienced by mainly women and women of many different um, you know, backgrounds, ethnicities, etc. But we also need to look at the particular difficulties that, you know, minoritized women experience mm -hmm. within the family court system, within the justice system generally. And from the beginning, access, for example, mm -hmm. before they even got there, can be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lack of understanding in the public generally, but perhaps in these communities even more about um, the courts and how it can assist. And then if you've got, you know, women from particular groups who are um, less likely to earn enough money to be able to um, pay for legal representation, mm -hmm. then how are they going to access the courts, especially when legal aid has been stripped in so many different types of cases? Mm -hmm. um, and then you want to think about how they are when they are in proceedings and how, how their barristers and solicitors may treat them. Nobody asks that question. I think that's something that needs to be asked by these clients. Um, how the court system treats them and how judges treat them as well and the assumptions that they make about, about them based on, on the characteristics that they have. Mm -hmm. I think are things that really need to be considered. Um, because and that's in that's in 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 the justice system for an individual bringing proceedings. Then even stepping out on it, like in a wider sort of facet in terms of like law and society and um, protection and things. Like I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that me as a black woman, I'm less protected than other women, mm -hmm. particularly white women in this country. The likelihood of police not only coming to assist me, but then taking my case and charging someone and going through all of that is slimmer than if I was a white woman. Mm -hmm. And it's very sad. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's another place where, you know, intersectional feminism could have could have a a role to play there. Mm-hmm. Like who 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 is actually getting protection from by the state and who isn't? Yeah. And who's being discriminated against by the state as well, and who isn't? Mm-hmm. I think it's a problem. And I mean, we can take it to society generally. You just pull it out and just be like, look at you know deprived areas and the fact that the life expectancy is so low. And then you actually, if you live in those deprived areas, the 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 services that you receive in respect of like the NHS and stuff are far worse than they are in other places. Like I look back at when I was in Tottenham and the services that I would receive there, and then I've moved to where I've moved now, which is a uh, uh, middle class area, mm-hmm. and it's so much better. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my god, you guys are so nice. <laughs> this doctor's actually listening to what I'm saying. Um, oh my god, um, yeah, completely different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. You, you know, you look at the um, pregnant mortality, women mortality rates, and um, black women was it four times more likely to die. Yeah. It's, it's things like that where you need you need that sort of intersectional sort of viewpoint on things to to be able to see that there are particular problems that particular marginalized groups mm-hmm. experience and I think it's it's definitely something that can be applied to to the bar certainly absolutely I mean the pregnancy case that's literally what I was thinking when it, it goes back to the education point that we we're making before right because if it if the entire system is built and we're educated on on a handbook that is by men for men by white people for white people how can a doctor or police officer recognize bruises on skin that is not white for instance yeah. and um, understand that different bodies react in different ways or different people react in different ways and you still have to recognize that and and take that for what it is which is gender abuse domestic abuse issues within a pregnancy um and there are so many cases in domestic violence as well of women black women being strong and you know big and you know being able to fight off uh, like assault that was one thing i wanted to mention actually is the assumptions that people make about domestic abuse victims and a lot of women have spoken about it particularly white women um about how they always expect us the 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 victim to be sort of to appear to be weak and meek and sweet and teary and this that, and the other and you know, you've had a lot of white women saying that that is problematic mm-hmm. well I hope that they're also thinking about the assumptions that are made about black women and how strong we are and 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 um how that can lead the courts to think there's no way that she was abused she couldn't be abused come on she probably abused him mm-hmm. um and yeah that's an example of i think of a, a problem that we have um within our system and and that is why intersectional feminism needs to be considered and then also you know just looking at how the law is applied as well and, and whether we have access and things like that i mean definitely read some Kimberly Crenshaw. I read her um, during my master's actually, because I did, um, one of the courses I did was gender on the state. And before I picked it, I spoke to my friend who'd done it. And I said, so I'm thinking of doing it, what do you think? And she was just like, well, in terms of like my work, you know, it was fine. But in terms of my life, it's the one module that has like impacted my life the most. Um, and I took it obviously and 
yeah like obviously it's, it's impacted my work as well because we were talking about things like family law we were speaking about things like on a base abuse we were speaking about things like um gendered harms in um conflicts um and international humanitarian law and things like that so we spoke about lots of things but obviously we started with the foundational principles of feminism and stuff so i ended up having to read not just not having to read but also reading in my own time like the fabulous McKinnon, which who I'd read at my undergrad, obviously, and mm-hmm. she's just like some of her. It's just the, the quotes and the sound bites. It's just fantastic. I have our women human um, in my bedroom actually, which I need to continue reading. But it's just you pick up what she's reading. It's that you know, <laughs> especially um, I think one of her essays where she's talking about um, which I think is whether our women human, which is the title of the book, because it's a collection of um, her speeches, I think. Um, where she talks about uh, international law, I think, or human rights law, or both, um, and about us being like subhuman, non-human, because like it wasn't written for us. So clearly, we must think that we're not human. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's just like this stuff that just hits you. Just like, oh my god, she's so right. Mm-hmm. Life's so sad. Um, so we're just going on a bit of a tangent there with it, but <laughs> yes, yes, it's definitely needed because the way people try and turn around and say that everything is universal and it applies to everybody is not true because it's not being applied to everybody, mm-hmm. um, and it's not being applied to everybody in a in a in an equal way. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just not. That's fantastic. And it leads me to my next question, because we're talking about books. And my next question is, do you have a favorite, it doesn't have to be, I hate when people ask me for my favorite book and things, because I don't have one, but it can be a really good one that you've read lately. So a favorite song, a favorite book, a favorite movie um, that you would like to plug? Um, do you know what? Yeah, I don't actually have a favorite book. I, I mean, I would recommend that people obviously read like McKinnon obviously I'm not saying I agree with everything that she says by the way but I think she's just fantastic um Simone de Beauvoir all the rest of the greats um in terms of and Kimberly Crenshaw I mentioned before already um in terms of songs Okay, this is a we're sort of getting off law completely, perhaps. But like, as I mentioned before, there are songs that make people teary, and they usually love songs. That's not for me. Um, we've mentioned ABBA already. Thank you for the music. I, d- I haven't actually played ABBA in this house on Alexa actually. Maybe I did tonight. Um, but one moment in time by Whitney Houston is one of those songs that like it really gets me, and I think. I mean, she says, what, give me one moment in time where I'm more than I thought I would be when all of my dreams are heartbeat away and the answers are all up to me. Um, and it really gets to me, like, really does. Like, sort of like career and life sort of songs. I'm just like, will I ever have that one moment in time? I'm chasing it and I don't know if I'm gonna get it. And I'm worried that I may have already had it. So it makes me really teary. Um, another one is, um that's what friends are for by like Dion Warwick and um Stevie Wonder and Elton John and in fact all friends songs will get me crying like I said lots of people it's love songs and I'm just like you broke my heart idiot 
<laughs> moving on but like friend zones they really get to me because I think you have friends and when you're younger you kind of have friends and then you, you don't have some friends and you start new friendships or whatever but as I'm older I've sort of really recognized the value of having friends and how you know how important they are to have that shoulder mm-hmm. you know to cry on that person to speak to in good times and in bad times Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we all know that some people are fair weather friends who are with you when it's good times and when it's bad times they're nowhere to be seen so when you have those friends that are there mm-hmm. regardless like that love that you have like nobody talks about that love and I think it's the loveliest love because mm-hmm. we always talk about love of like you know partners and things but sorry but partners you know that relationship might end your marriage might end but who will still be there It'll be your friends. <laughs> You'll be leaning on them. And um, that's why it just makes me feel really, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is an entire TED talk about how female friendships actually make your life longer. So you're not far away from the truth on that oh, one. Yeah, I, I believe that 100%. Mm-hmm. I believe that 100%. They keep me alive. So. I love that. <laughs> Do you have a playlist with all of your favorite songs that you just get home after a really long day and you just put it on and no and I should do that because sometimes like trying to decide on what to play when I'm cooking can be quite a struggle okay and then it like pauses me and I'm just like then you have to think of what, what mood you're in what mood are you in are you getting in a dancing mood are you in a, in a slow jams singing away mood mm-hmm. are you in a slow jam from back in the day mood that's often on Saturdays for some reason but um, <laughs> like daytime for some reason it's just like yeah 112 and next and stuff um so no I should do really you can do moods playlist that's what I have like a happy mood playlist and I oh god I'm so sad I'm feeling miserable and I need to wallow in playlist so yeah that's that's a task for you yes. <laughs> coming up soon yeah. And my final question for tonight, because I have so many more questions for you and at some other point, but my final question is, what would you like Themis to focus on, to work on? And it can be a new project, a specific topic, a type of event, it can be anything. I think, I think one thing that would be good to do is, you know, bringing women together from different backgrounds and just giving us a space to sort of understand each other's sort of backgrounds and pasts and things and to build a bond and to back to back each other mm-hmm. I think would be really good um yeah because like I've said before the thing about the bar is that it's very isolating so you kind of you have a little bubble of your chambers and then you're in it for a bit so then you might meet some other people along the way and get friends outside of your chambers who are also barristers but like it's still kind of like close-knit whereas there are so many and then also because the dominant is the non-intersectional sorry say you know the white man or whatever mm-hmm. um you have lots of the dominant where you are and then you won't have many sort of women or intersectional women in particular um around you so having a space to bring us all together so that we can just like offload share understand from each other's experiences and just make sure that we back each other with things would be really good um 
I really want to see some some proper solidarity and some sisterhood um, across the different, you know, races and other demographics as well, because um, sometimes it can be quite insular with certain things, which is necessary in some instances. Like, of course, we set up the Black Barristers Network because us black barristers were so few and far between and we were dotted about everywhere and we wanted to come together and we wanted to sort of like, you know, uplift each other and I think it's needed. Um, but I think Themis has a good opportunity to sort of bring different intersectional barristers together so that we can all sort of like, mm -hmm. you know, create bonds and things. So. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for sticking with me, for answering all my questions, and again, for agreeing to be our Shearer of the Month. Thank uh, you for having me as the Shearer. Like, it's so sweet. No one's ever called me a Shearer before. No one's <laughs> called me a Shearer. No one's called me a hero. No one said I'm pretty. That's a lie. Uh <laughs> I'm not going to believe that. And I mean, it wasn't even a question. I think I said, oh, we should start this. And everyone was like, Natasha. So oh. there was never a question. You were always going to be our first. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to reading your article as well that will be coming out on our blog. So thank you again. Thank you. And before I finish, actually, I just feel like I keep touching my necklace and people might wonder where mm -hmm. that's from. Yes, on the black business. <laughs> I'll get you to put the link in the chat underneath. Mm -hmm. They're actually really sustainable. Um, they have their jewelry made in um, Kenya and they actually pay um, the Kenyans, and I'm also Kenyan, um, like a proper fee to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's my earrings too. And it's, yeah, it's great. Send the link, absolutely. We'll post all the links uh, with, the, with the video. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Natasha. I'm just going to stop recording now. <laughs>